Chapter Twenty Three of The Mentor Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mentor Two by Various. Spain and Gibraltar by Dwight L. Elmendorf, Lecturer and Traveller, Department of Travel. A Trip Around the World with Dwight L. Elmendorf, Lecturer and Traveller. Gone is the ancient glory of Spain. To the visitor, it appeals chiefly as a country of a splendid past. This is not true, of course, of some of the more populous localities. Barcelona is full of life and commercially enterprising, and Madrid is full of activity and is a natural centre of interest as the capital of the nation. But many of the cities and towns of Spain attract chiefly as interesting and picturesque survivals. They breathe the atmosphere of a former age. We feel the influence of it wherever we turn. Spain is not much travelled by tourists. More would go, perhaps, if they realised what splendid scenery was there and how rich in historic and romantic associations the country was. Since the days of the first inhabitants, the Iberians, and beginning with the Celts who crossed the Pyrenees some 500 years BC, Spain has been invaded by Phoenicians, Carthaginians, Romans, Vandals and Visigoths, Arabs and Moors, and each of these races has left evidences of its dominion in monuments of one kind or another, in architectural forms, in roads and buildings, and in the language and customs of communities. The interesting Basque people of the northern provinces of Spain are declared by students of history to be almost unmixed descendants of the original Iberians. The glory that was Spain's. And in these many years, what glory has been Spain's? She has been aptly called an eddy of tribes and races. Under Moorish rule, she commanded the Mediterranean. Then, as a Christian kingdom, beginning with Rodrigo the Cid and Alfonso the Sixth in the 11th century, and extending through several hundred years under such famous rulers as Ferdinand and Isabella, and later Charles V and Philip II, Spain acquired the whole peninsula and rose to be a great world power. In war, she was a dreaded foe of France, England and the Netherlands. Her armada for years swept the seas. In search of treasure and to extend Spain's power and possessions, Vasco da Gama discovered India, and Columbus opened up the new continents of the Western world. All the achievements of Spain in the brilliant past 
are brought home to the visitor who spends even a few weeks in that country. So many things in Spain are interesting for what they were. The visitor soon comes to know the mood of Washington Irving, who dwelt for a time in the Alhambra. His impressions are like those of a beautiful dream. Irving withdrew from the world of his day and immersed himself in the romance of the past. That is the mood in which the traveller will enjoy himself most when visiting many places in Spain. The Land of the Dons The very entrance to Spain is a fit preparation for the strange, interesting and beautiful things to be seen there. No one can forget the day that he crosses the impressive boundary between France and Spain, winding about and tunnelling through the majestic Pyrenees. Once this superb mountain range is passed, the traveller feels as if he had come upon a different world from any that he has seen before. His attention turns first, most naturally, to the great cities, which differ essentially from one another. Perhaps no two more contrasting cities could be selected than Toledo and Madrid. Toledo was from the earliest times a capital city. The Romans, Goths, Moors, and finally the Christians made it the headquarters of authority. It was the scene of the triumph of that world-admired hero of the 11th century, Rodrigo the Cid. Toledo is in all respects an impressive relic of bygone splendour. Madrid, on the other hand, is a modern city. In the days when Toledo was most magnificent and had a population of over 200,000, Madrid was a little town. Today, Madrid numbers over 500,000 inhabitants, while Toledo's population has dwindled to less than 30,000. In Toledo, we find many things as they have been for hundreds of years. The city is still famous for its swords. The Toledo blade is known the world over today as it was in Roman times. The traveller does well to visit Toledo first. Its very situation is extraordinary. The river Tagus flows about it and almost binds it in like a rope. The banks of the river are rocky and steep and spanned by several interesting old stone bridges. A City of the Past The effect of Toledo viewed from the south and looking across the gorge through which the river flows is remarkable. The city is enclosed within ancient Moorish and Gothic fortifications and presents an aspect of a jumble of housetops dominated by two great structures, the Cathedral and the Alcazar. Enter Toledo 
and you find novelty and picturesqueness on every side. The streets are narrow and crooked. The houses are blind and forbidding on the outside, reserving their attractions for their inner courts. Everything about you is strange and curious, and full of historic significance. If you wish to get the history of Spain in condensed form, you will find it in Toledo. The cathedral is the most important feature of the city, and one of the finest and most interesting in Europe. The religious life of Spain centred there for centuries. On that site, a Christian temple stood in the 6th century. When the Moors came, they made a mosque of it. Then Alfonso VI took possession in 1085, and the Moors were driven out. In the 13th century, the old building was torn down, and the present edifice was begun. During 265 years, it was in course of construction, a life work for many architects and artisans. And there, the great archbishops of Toledo controlled the government and civilization of Spain for years. Everything of importance that made Spanish history was then in their hands. You are made to realize this when you visit the cathedral. It contains many valuable relics of history and art treasures. When you have seen these, go to the tower. The view will repay you. The most prominent object to be seen from there is the Alcazar, standing on the highest ground in the city. This building is the phoenix that has risen over the conflagrations of former structures on that site. The original building was a Roman citadel. When the Cid reigned supreme in the 11th century, he resided there. Afterward, fires consumed the building, and it was rebuilt several times. It has been, in turn, a castle, a palace, a cadet academy, and now it stands there, a stately and imposing monument to the past. Madrid, the capital of Spain Madrid was made the capital by Philip II in 1560. It was not by nature attractive. The winter winds are cruel, and the summer heat is intense. The country round about is bleak, and for years after it became the capital, it remained a city of small buildings and unimposing appearance. But the court being there, it was the centre of all political and religious activities. Arts and letters received their greatest stimulus under the patronage of church and court. Cervantes lived there, and it was in Madrid that he finished his immortal Don Quixote. The Bourbons came into power in the 18th century, and then the great royal palace was built. After that, Madrid increased rapidly in population, and improved in appearance. 
Today it is a city of great activity, full of life, gaiety, and fashion. In short, the Spanish Paris. The two things that command most interest in Madrid are the palace and the museum. The palace, which stands on high land on the site of the old Moorish Alcazar, was erected between 1738 and 1764, and is a most imposing structure, no matter from what side it is viewed. Some idea of its immensity may be gathered from the statement that it covers 26,900 square yards of ground, and its sides are 500 feet long. Like many great structures in Spain, it is built of native granite. It is not easy to gain access to the interior of the palace. Sometimes, in the absence of the royal family, permission may be obtained, and those who have the privilege of being admitted find there are many relics of historic value, a priceless collection of tapestry, a number of most interesting old works of art, and a library containing many volumes of unique worth. The collection of paintings in the art museum is one of the finest in all Europe. There is a magnificent representation of the Spanish school, and especially of the great painter Velasquez. There are sixty pictures of his, including some of his most brilliant works. There are also many splendid examples of the art of Murillo and many paintings by Rubens and Van Dyck. The Escorial Situated 27 miles from Madrid is the village and palace of Escorial. The Escorial is a most extraordinary building. Many of the Spanish people regard it as the eighth wonder of the world. It is a fitting memorial of the cold, cruel monarch who built it. It is related that Philip II constructed the Escorial in fulfilment of a vow made during the Battle of St. Quentin, which took place on St. Lawrence's Day, August the 10th, 1557. King Philip declared that he would, in case of victory, erect a memorial building to St. Lawrence that would transcend any structure of its kind that had ever been built before. St. Lawrence, it will be remembered, was burnt to death on a gridiron, and it is said that, in memorial of this, the structure of the Escorial was planned to resemble a gridiron in form. There is nothing authoritative to substantiate this tradition, however. It is simply the story that goes with the place. This monstrous building was begun in 1563 and was completed in 1584. It is a monastery and a palace at the same time. Its vastness overwhelms the mind. At first sight, 
you are awed by the solemn, stern, and forbidding aspect of the building, and this first impression is deepened after going through the immense courts, corridors, and chambers. It has but little ornament to relieve its severity. It is the work of a morbid and superstitious man. As one visitor has put it, Philip was the proudest among kings, and the most bigoted among devotees. What wonder that he should build a convent and palace, and make its costliest room his sepulchre? The Escorial staggers description. Perhaps an adequate idea of it may be had from a brief statement of facts. It cost three and one quarter million dollars and covers five hundred thousand square feet. It is seven hundred feet long, five hundred and eighty feet wide, and is divided into sixteen courts. The great towers at the corners rise two hundred feet. The main cupola, or tower above the church, in the centre, is three hundred and twenty feet in height. When we add that there are eighty-six staircases, eighty-nine fountains, fifteen cloisters, twelve hundred doors, two thousand six hundred windows, and miles of corridors, we sum up in a measure the astounding dimensions of this wonderful structure. The Escorial is well kept by the Augustinian brothers who are in charge. The surrounding terrace and gardens are carefully cultivated, and these outer adornments help a little to soften the austerity of the stupendous pile of granite buildings. In this country of contrasts, there is no more striking contrast than that between the cruel Escorial and the romantic Alhambra. It is pleasant to turn south to Granada, for the greatest treat of all for a visitor in Spain awaits him there. Granada is picturesquely situated in a valley, on ground that rises toward the hill of the Alhambra. The view from the highest points is beautiful. Granada is not especially attractive in itself. It is chiefly a city of the past. It is the Alhambra that draws the visitor there. This celebrated building is a dream of Moorish magnificence made real. It is impossible to do justice to its wondrous beauties in brief space. An extensive literature has been written in description and in appreciation of its architectural splendours and of its romantic interest. Washington Irving has done most for the subject in his Tales of the Alhambra. He lived there for a time and wrote there during his stay. You will find his name registered in the visitor's book under the date of 1829. The Alhambra, like many Moorish buildings, is severely simple on the outside. But when you enter, 
your senses are captivated by the exquisite beauty of design and decoration that stretches out before you as you go through the courts and halls of this wonder palace while in the whole it presents an effect of uniformity there is infinite variety and detail and there are countless forms of beauty about you that captivate the mind and fill the soul with delight aside from the alhambra there are two buildings in granada that command special attention the palace of charles v which adjoins the alhambra and the palace of the general liffa both of them have features of great architectural beauty the former building was never completed the palace of the general liffa is situated to the east of the alhambra and is one hundred and sixty-five feet higher it was the summer residence of the moorish kings from there the finest view about granada can be had covering the alhambra below and stretching far across the vega or plain to the distant mountains the interior of the general liffa in its time must have been as beautiful as that of the alhambra the most beautiful spot is the garden of the general liffa with its terraces pools grottoes hedges and overhanging trees seville it is a great relief to turn from the squalor in granada to the comforts and delights of seville there is no town or city in spain that can compare in charm with seville by its snow-white cleanliness its fragrant fruit and flowers its luxurious foliage its gay and harmonious life it invites the traveller to stay and few can resist the invitation once introduced to the home life of the inhabitants the visitor is apt to renounce gladly for a time all thought of departure everywhere about him is competence comfort and content it seems as if families vie with one another in making their homes attractive the family life is in the inner court or patio that is the summer parlour and there in the midst of flowers plants and beautiful birds friendly parties gather in happy companionship it is in seville it seems to me that the life of the native spaniard may be seen in its most attractive light the two most notable sites in seville are the alcazar which was the palace of the moorish kings and afterward the home of spanish rulers and the cathedral which is one of the finest largest and most beautiful gothic churches to be found anywhere the alcazar has much of the beauty that is to be found in the alhambra many of the interior decorations are not of the original building but were the result of a restoration and in this work many of the designs were frankly borrowed from the alhambra 
The cathedral is one of the largest and most beautiful in Europe. Within this great building, there are so many interesting and valuable works of historic and art interest that it might fairly be called a museum. One feature of the exterior of the cathedral arrests the eye of a New Yorker at once, the tower. He is apt to exclaim on sight of it, the Madison Square Tower. The similarity is close. When the plans of the Madison Square building were made, the Tower of Seville was copied. We have gone now far to the south. A few miles brings us to Cadiz on the ocean coast, or Malaga on the Mediterranean. The distance from either of these two attractive cities to Gibraltar is short. Gibraltar, the impregnable. And when we reach Gibraltar, the change of scene and life is abrupt and almost startling. If we go to Gibraltar by the road from Spain, we cross a narrow strip called Neutral Ground. It is arbitrarily fixed territory between Spanish and British ground. It is so low that it can hardly be seen from a distance. The effect is to make Gibraltar seem like an island. In case of emergency, it would not be difficult to blow up this neutral strip and make an actual separation. The rock of Gibraltar has been for years the symbol of stability and of strength. It is, in a military sense, the key to the Mediterranean. It was taken by the British in 1704 during the War of the Spanish Succession by Admiral George Rook, who commanded the British fleet. It has been fortified by the English government in a manner that is most discouraging to anyone contemplating a hostile advance through the straits. The shape of Gibraltar is that of an enormous lion. As Thackeray says, it crouches there to guard the passage for its British mistress. At the base of the rock are batteries. Up on the summit are guns of heavy calibre, and over its face are holes through which cannon muzzles look out across the water like sullen and malignant eyes. Gibraltar is over 1,400 feet high and is composed of limestone. Under its present conditions of fortification, it is declared to be impregnable. It looks it. At the foot of the great rock is a town of 30,000 inhabitants, of whom 6,500 are soldiers, composing the British garrison. In this town is to be found a cosmopolitan mixture of men, and the character of it shifts from time to time according to conditions of traffic through the straits. There is enough to entertain a visitor for a day. Life there for a long time must grow monotonous. The impressions, however, of a single day at Gibraltar are not forgotten. 
you carry away the conviction that, whatever might happen to anything else in this world, Gibraltar is likely to stay. Spain and Gibraltar Toledo, the ancient capital 1. Rodrigo, last of the Gothic kings of Spain, heard in his palace at Toledo that the Moors had crossed from Africa to Gibraltar. A little army led by Tarek landed in 711 and marched northward, conquering as it went. King Rodrigo, with a great force of Spaniards, met them in Andalusia. He commanded the centre. The wings were led by King Witteza's sons, who, hoping to recover the country that Rodrigo had taken from their father, joined the Moors and pressed with them into battle. Rodrigo was surrounded and cut down. The Moors marched northward, taking city after city in the name of Muhammad, till all Spain was theirs. The last of the Gothic kings had fallen. From that day to this, Toledo has never regained her position as the capital of Spain. In the royal palace, Tarek found twenty-five crowns of the old Gothic kings, golden and richly jewelled, the Psalms of David written on gold leaf with dissolved rubies, and the emerald table of Solomon. Those crowns may still be seen, but no one has ever seen the other treasures. The Moorish kings, though they ruled Toledo mildly, had no end of trouble from the haughty nobility, who, robbed of their high position, were always in revolt against the conquerors. At last, Sultan Hakim decided to punish his unruly subjects. He gave them a governor of their own race, who pretended to hate the foreigners, but was secretly in league with Hakim. Amron soon won the hearts of his people, and built a great castle in the middle of the city. There he held a reception for Prince Abderrahman, to which all the nobles and rich citizens of Toledo were invited. Feeling the honour of royal presence, which their city had not enjoyed for many years, the Toledans went by thousands to the castle. Told to enter one by one, noble and grandee went in, but not to feast. Five thousand lost their heads in the trap. Amron thought, no doubt, that it was a good joke but he had not much time to enjoy it. When the people realised what he had done, a mob gathered and burned his castle, with Amron in it. Toledo was early freed from Moorish rule, and the greatest of those who helped to maintain her independence was Rodrigo Diaz the Cid, who, next to Napoleon, is held by many to be the foremost heroic figure in European history. He held important court offices under Alfonso, living in the Alcazar at Toledo. 
Many poems and stories have been written about the Cid. He belonged to a noble family, married the granddaughter of Alfonso V, and later made himself a king. The fate of a battle was never in doubt if the Cid was fighting, for his side was sure of victory. Toward the end of his life, after hundreds of battles and duels, he made his most famous conquest, the taking of Valencia from the Moors, in 1094. He ruled well and justly for the next five years over Valencia and Mercia, and in 1099 died of anger over the defeat of his favourite lieutenant. The Cid is Spain's hero and saint, familiar to all in legend and in song. Madrid, the capital. 2. Standing on the grand stairway of the royal palace, his hand upon the balustrade, and looking at the splendour about him, Napoleon Bonaparte said to his brother Joseph, to whom he had given the throne of Spain, You are better housed than I am. That was the emperor's opinion of the royal residence in Madrid. To Napoleon, the conquest of this ancient and famous land of Spain was one of his greatest victories. Many people, when they first see the country around Madrid, are surprised at the lack of trees there. It is known that the mountains of that region were once covered with a heavy growth of forest, which has since been cut away. The trees were felled to put money into the royal treasury. One reason they were never replanted is that many of the Castilians have a strong dislike for trees. They think only of the birds that nest among the branches and feed in grain fields. They forget that trees are both useful and beautiful in themselves, giving shade and moisture and beautifying the scenery. In later years, a wise government has come to see that the slight loss of farmland is not nearly so important as the effect woodlands have on climate. Groves now dot the landscape with patches of refreshing green, and the climate about Madrid is already improving. It is hoped that the bleak country, which now grows only a spare crop of corn, will become fertile and fruitful again when new forests have influenced a more regular rainfall and steadier temperature. Scientific forestry can probably redeem the error that was committed centuries ago. Madrid, though a modern city, has been from the beginning a centre of art and literature. Velázquez went there from Seville to spend the greater part of his life. It was there that Cervantes, author of Don Quixote, lived and died. More important, perhaps, than any other figure in the Spanish drama was Lope de Viga, a native of the city. He led an eventful life while writing poems and plays with wonderful readiness. 
According to his own statement, more than a hundred of his plays were written so quickly that it took only twenty-four hours from the time he started to compose each one of them until it had been produced on the stage. He wrote eighteen hundred plays. He is said to have printed twenty-one million three hundred thousand lines, which, if we can believe his own account, was only a part of all that he wrote. To do this, he must have written nearly nine hundred lines a day all through his life. Many other artists and writers have worked in Madrid, and the Spanish capital is still a well-known centre of culture. Alcazar at Seville 3. Tranquilly amid its gardens that glow with roses and orange blossoms, the Alcazar of Seville, palace of the old Castilian kings, stands now as it stood in the days of the Moors. Here and there a ceiling, a stairway, or a colonnade, damaged by fire or earthquake, has been repaired according to architectural ideas of more modern times. But in the main, those Moorish kings who built it could sleep, if they were there today, in their own rooms undisturbed by any feeling of strangeness. The site on which the Alcazar was built is probably the oldest in Seville. The palace replaces an old Gothic castle which had been erected on the foundations of a Roman villa. Uncertain traditions and the imagination of historical writers have pictured the houses of shepherds on the same spot before history began. There are many stories about the Alcazar, both true and fabulous. The Court of Maidens took its name from one of these. It was said that a tribute of a hundred maidens paid to the Mohammedan ruler had been lodged in that part of the Alcazar. History does not show that the Caliph ever asked for such a tribute, and it is probable that the Court of Maidens had not been built at the time when this incident is supposed to have taken place. Nevertheless, such a story has grown up, and has given the court a name that it will doubtless bear for all time. After Castile had thrown off Moorish rule, Seville was made the capital of Spain. For several centuries, Christian kings lived in the Alcazar, adding somewhat to the original structure as the Moors had left it. The name of Pedro is more closely connected than any other Spanish ruler with the history and fiction of the building. He was called Pedro the Cruel. A grim sense of humour and a habit of going through the streets of Seville in disguise have made him the subject of many odd tales and rumours. Some of these stories are merely whimsical. He is said to have met four candidates for a judge's position beside a pool in the gardens where they had gone to find him. Pedro, turning to the first, 
asked him what was floating in the pool. An orange, replied the candidate without hesitation. The second and third gave him the same answer. The fourth fished out the piece of fruit with his staff, examined it and replied more accurately, half an orange. Pedro immediately gave him the appointment. Cathedral of Seville 4. There is a Spanish proverb that says, Whom God favours, he gives a house in Seville. The privilege of living in that bright, gay city is considered by a Spaniard to be the height of happiness. Other cities are larger, wealthier, or more important politically than Seville, but none holds a higher place in the hearts of the Spanish people. When in the beginning of the 15th century the old cathedral was damaged by an earthquake, a meeting was held to discuss what should be done to restore it. Then one proposed that, instead of repairing the old church, they should build a new edifice, larger and more magnificent than had ever been imagined. They planned a cathedral that should make all who saw it wonder at the daring of those who began it. What the public funds would not supply, they agreed to furnish out of their own purses. Only 117 years were consumed in the erection of this wondrous structure, which is a short time as old cathedrals go. After St. Peter's at Rome, and the Mesquita at Cordova, it is the largest church in the world. It is 414 feet long, 271 feet wide, and 100 feet high to the top of the nave. The immense pillars, as you look down the church between them, seem to diminish in the distance to the thickness of reeds. Many another cathedral could stand inside the nave of this one. There are numerous churches in the city. Most of the older ones are built on the foundations of mosques. The church of La Caridad has a strange legend connected with it. Don Miguel de Manara, the founder, had been a profligate in his youth, a sort of Don Juan, and was known far and wide for his excesses. One night when he was returning home alone, he lost his way, and wandered about in a daze, unable to find his home. In imagination, he met a funeral procession, and stopping one of the bearers, inquired who it was they were taking to eternal rest at such an hour. Don Miguel de Manara, he replied. Greatly surprised at hearing his own name, Don Miguel uncovered the face and saw there his own features. The procession immediately vanished, but left him so deeply impressed that he was converted and built a church and a hospital. Siege of Granada 5. The city of Granada was the last Moorish stronghold in Spain. 
the usurpers had been driven from province after province, while the power of Castile increased in all the country round. Only the province of Granada held firm. Even there, losses in war had so weakened the Moors that their kings paid tribute to the Christian rulers, down to the time of Muli Hassan. He was a proud and cruel monarch, so fond of the dignity his fathers had held that he not only withheld the tribute, but even made inroads into Spanish territory. A ten years' war followed. Spain determined to drive her enemy out of Europe once and for all. In battle after battle, the Christians narrowed Hassan's kingdom, till the people of Granada rose in revolt against the ruler, whose bad luck and tyranny made him so unpopular. He was dethroned, and the kingdom given to Boabdil, his son. Boabdil was, if anything, more unfortunate than his father, for Ferdinand and Isabella pushed their conquest little by little up to the very walls of Granada. A long siege followed. The Moors, as they lost the power they had held so long over the rich and delightful lands of Spain, tried every trick of warfare without effect. Ferdinand had given orders not to attack the city. He intended to win by starving his enemies rather than by fighting, while the Moors did all they could to provoke a battle. One daring knight, named Yarf, rode out of the gates. Unexpectedly, he made his way to the Christian camp, and threw a spear into the ground close by the royal pavilion as an insult to Queen Isabella. In return, Hernando de Polgar, disregarding the order of Ferdinand, broke through the gates of Granada with a few followers and pinned a tablet on the door of a mosque with his dagger. Upon the tablet were the words, Ave Maria. Thus the knights of both sides showed their recklessness under the long siege. The Spanish army lay so long encamped on the Vega, or plain, within view of the city walls and the magnificent buildings of the Alhambra, that at last... After the tents had been accidentally burned, Ferdinand ordered a city to be built for the soldiers. Each of the towns of Spain sent its share of materials, and in a remarkably short time, Santa Fe, as it was called, stood side by side with Granada. When all the Vega was laid waste, when the Moors were starving and discontented, and a hostile walled city frowned in sight of the Alhambra, Boabdil at length made terms of peace. He said farewell to the palace of Moorish kings, and all the luxuries he had enjoyed as its ruler, surrendered the keys of the city to Ferdinand, and went away greatly humbled. Never afterward did the Moors hold power in Spain. Rock of Gibraltar. 6. 
One night, over two centuries ago, a band of Spaniards, led by a goat herd, crept up the rock of Gibraltar to St. Michael's Cave, where dawn overtook them, and where they remained all through the next day. As soon as darkness had fallen again, they scaled the wall, surrounded the signal house, and in a few moments overpowered the guard. The British in the fortress never dreamed of danger so close at hand. Ropes and ladders were lowered stealthily over the precipice, and the Spaniards, feeling sure of victory, brought up several hundred men for the attack. If all had gone well, Gibraltar might have been in the hands of Spain again before sunrise, but some part of the work was clumsily done, for British sentries caught the alarm, and a body of grenadiers, hastily called together, rushed out upon their midnight assailants. Gibraltar was saved by the British. Some of the Spaniards they hurled over the cliff, the rest surrendered, and were taken prisoners. The history of Gibraltar was, for many centuries, one of sieges and captures. The rock was first known to the Greeks and Romans as one of the pillars of Hercules. The other, Mount Abela, stands on the African shore. But at that period, when ships rarely sailed out of the Mediterranean, the pillar was unimportant to any great nation in war. It fell into the hands of Phoenicians, Romans, Carthaginians and Visigoths at different periods in history. Tarek, landing there when he crossed from Africa into Spain, built a castle on the rock, which was therefore called Jebel el Tarek, or Hill of Tarek, the original form of the name of Gibraltar. It fell into the hands of England after the Spaniards and Moors had fought over it for centuries. Once again, in the great siege that began in 1779 and lasted more than three years, England came dangerously near losing the fortress. Spain and France took advantage of British losses in America to open fire on the Mediterranean stronghold. After the garrison of over 5,000 men had been reduced to starvation, and only the bravery of General Elliot could keep them together, Gibraltar was bombarded from the mainland. Just when his command seemed lost under the strain of attack and of hardships endured so long, the Scotsman led his troops to the attack, and, taking the much larger Spanish army by surprise, drove them back and burned their fortifications. Again, Spain and France attacked from the sea, but Elliot burned their ships with red-hot cannonballs. The struggle was renewed from time to time all during the siege, until at last peace was proclaimed. General Elliot, returning home, was received with the highest military honours for his courage. England has been offered all of Spain's possessions in Africa in exchange for the one great sterile rock. 
yet nothing will induce her to give up that hold on the gate of the Mediterranean. End of Spain and Gibraltar